The Athletic. Whoever thought we'd see the day? Bring back V10s has sold its soul, presumably under pressure from the manufacturers, and we've gone hybrid. But we've picked a modern classic for our first somewhat dangerous foray into the world of MGUKs and MGUHs, the 2014 Canadian Grand Prix, where Daniel Ricciardo famously took his maiden win and inflicted Mercedes' first defeat of the hybrid era in crazy circumstances. We'll look back over everything that happened that afternoon in Montreal, including the simultaneous failures that ruined Mercedes' perfect record and the scary crash between Felipe Massa and Sergio Perez on the last lap two gentlemen who we should say thought they could win this race. Off track, there was all sorts going on in F1 that summer. We had the beginnings of the Lewis Hamilton-Nico Rosberg feud, Haas announcing details of its plans to come into F1, and perhaps most importantly for everything that's followed really, Adrian Newey signed a new contract with Red Bull after rejecting advances from Mercedes and Ferrari. So to revisit all that and much more with me, Glenn Freeman, we have two people who were there that weekend covering events on the ground, our very own Ed Straw and Ben Anderson. Ben, you can go first with the opening question. 2014 was your first season covering F1 full time. Yep. So when you cast your mind back to Canada that year, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, first year covering F1 was an unusual experience across the board because watching the race in the media centre, you're devoid of commentary. You don't get circuit commentary, you don't get TV commentary, you just get pictures, timing screens and whatever else you can glean from the internet. And very passionate bunch in that race, in and it, all the races actually in the media centre, all watching this uh, tense denouement to the Canadian Grand Prix. And obviously there was that massive shunt between Sergio Perez and Felipe Massa towards the end, both possible victory contenders. The media centre reacted to that as it often does when there's a big shunt in a Formula 1 race. Big oohs and ahs, whoa! And my I colleague now know what you're going to say. From, <laughs> my colleague from the time uh, on F1 Racing, Jimmy Roberts, was head down watching the Sky Sports feed on his laptop with headphones, noise-cancelling headphones on. And obviously that feed was coming through on a delay. So the media centre had since descended into silence. And then you just heard Jimmy Roberts to my left go, whoa, whoa, oh, <laughs> as he caught up with events on track. It was absolutely hilarious. That's brilliant. I did. Uh, I saw uh, Jimmy recently and I told him we were doing this and reminded him of that. And uh, yeah, so I think he'll be delighted that it's got a mention. Uh, Ed, what's your standout memory from that trip to Montreal? Well, just to underline how standout Ben's memory was, that's exactly what I was going to say, actually. <laughs> I, I feel I should stress the gap between the accident happening and Jimmy's reaction was enormous. In my mind, it was about 10 minutes. It, it wasn't that long, but it was the incident was long, since, uh, was long since done and dusted. But anyway, so I've got to go with something else. I can't remember going trackside there because when you go out trackside and you walk down past turn one, you can kind of squeeze through the undergrowth. I'm sure Ben's done this basically between the track and the St. Lawrence Seaway. That's you can get essential. attacked. You can get attacked by the local wildlife as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quite the dangerous. birds. Yeah. <laughs> so, the, so the worst thing you can do is get attacked and then fall in the St. Lawrence Seaway because there's a sort of bank you can go down. So it's quite is that, is that your memory? Is that what happened to you, Ed? <laughs> sadly, there were no attacks. Ah. Doubly sadly, I didn't fall into the St. Lawrence <laughs> Seaway. But I did get to watch actually not contemporary F1 cars because 
quite often in that period they'd have a historic F1 car race and there were 20 odd cars all in their proper livery and I remember there was someone doing a very good Gilles Villeneuve impression in terms of the car and also the the helmet I think he's a guy called uh, Brad Muller was it so, on three wheels as well <laughs> only some of the time <laughs> I don't think it was it wasn't driven with quite the same verve as Gilles Villeneuve which is uh, not a, a harsh thing to say because few drove with that level of verve but I remember enjoying seeing that particular session there I can also remember I think you may have been in this session as well Ben when uh, we were giving poor old Esteban Gutierrez a bit of a hard time after his uh, terrible Monaco mistake when he'd hit the inside barrier at Rascas yeah. and missed out on very rare points for for Sauber that year and uh yeah so was, it's a bit of a shame because he's a, a yeah, good guy Esteban Gutierrez but uh yeah I, I remember badgering him about just how bad that error felt in in retrospect <laughs> uh for him on the on the Thursday so th- those are those are my other memories on the podium but yeah the, the delayed reaction will always <laughs> loom large in my mind I can still remember the the noise. he's a very demonstrative character Jimmy Roberts so that that noise he made always lingers in my memory poor Esteban Gutierrez catching strays there as well I didn't see that one coming uh, we've not got any memories from our audience this time as we've kept our sacrilegious switch to hybrid secret <laughs> so we'll go old school and catch up on some five-star reviews from Apple Podcasts, as we used to in the early days of Bring Back V10s. The thank you to NAC80, Blizzard, unless I'm very much mistaken, great name for obvious reasons, uh, The Lion of Singapore, Max Greenville, Ian D456, and Odds On Fan. And the last review we'll mention comes from an account name that I won't read out because it's just 18 random letters and numbers. And yes, I did count them. But I wanted to mention it because the person says, I think Ed Straw is my long lost brother because, Ed, of your love for terrible cars, minnow teams and ugly liveries. I don't know quite what to, uh, quite what to say for, to that other than to say impeccable taste and are you missing judgment. a brother ed well I, I wouldn't know that's the nature of long lost things sometimes you know when things are lost sometimes uh, sometimes you don't so yeah who knows but yeah that, well that's what that's what formula one's all about those are all the most important things everything else is just mere detail for nerds isn't it the real action is always at the back of the grid hence we've already spoken about 2014 spec sauber uh, as we approach the latter stages of Series 9, it's a great time to join the Race Members Club. We'll have exclusive bonus episodes for you after the series, including an Alex Zanardi book special where we look at the, the F1 chapter of his book from 2004 in full, uh, answering questions from our members, and of course our much-hyped, by me, series of mini-episodes looking back on a classic V10 season. You're not going to want to miss those, and they will be members exclusive, so make sure you join in with the fun and check out the link in the description of this episode to sign up. You will hear Ed and Ben on those episodes as well. While you're checking out links in the description, head over to our community on X as well. There's always something fascinating being discussed in there. I should say thank you to everyone who posts in there for keeping it so busy. Uh, I think when we started it, I did wonder in my head if I'd have to go in there every day and give people things to talk about. I do do my best to check in when I can, but I can assure you I'm always watching and enjoying that group from afar. But I think it's great that we're not having to go in there and post all the time because you guys have just taken it on and run with it. There's over 2,000 people in there now, and it's brilliant. For those of you who are part of our members club and in the community, I have a favour to ask. Uh, If you could help us keep this change of eras quiet until this episode is released in the main feed, that would be much appreciated. I know sometimes 
uh, some of our members go into the community and, and post their thoughts when they get to listen early, which I usually love because you're clearly bigging up that you've got the episode a week early. But in this case, we'll keep the secret going a little bit longer. So now, for those of you who haven't already switched off in protest, as <laughs> only being a V6 episode, let's get into Canada 2014. Heading into Canada, Mercedes was still dealing with the fallout from the previous race in Monaco. And fallout is the key word here, as that weekend was when the tension between Nico Rosberg and Lewis Hamilton boiled over the surface. Hamilton had made clear his unhappiness at what he felt was a deliberate move by Rosberg in Monaco qualifying to cause a yellow flag to secure pole. And now the whole world knew that these former friends had either fallen out or were in the process of doing so. Mercedes boss Toto Wolff said at the time that the situation was becoming stressful to manage, but he was 110% confident it would not harm the team and he vowed not to enact team orders to prevent his drivers being able to race each other. Wolff said the story of Hamilton and Rosberg being friends since they were in karting was a nice story but isn't actually how it is in reality. But he said as long as the drivers treated each other with respect, then it would not be a problem. Ben, this was still very early in the Hamilton-Rosberg narrative. Did you believe, Toto, at this stage that Mercedes would be able to keep this under control? Uh, it was looking really difficult. I mean, he was, he was half right in the sense that they did not enact team orders down the road. They were very keen, Mercedes, during this period to make sure the two of them fought it out because, and I imagine there was some pressure behind the scenes as well, Mercedes was so dominant at this at this juncture, first season, the first three seasons of hybrid F1, they needed to keep it exciting somehow. And the only way to keep it exciting was have Rosberg and Hamilton go at each other 10 bells. And Wolf was prepared to encourage that and effectively take the hit because the team did suffer massively during this period internally. Obviously, Monaco was the, the sort of big, first big public flashpoint and the accusations that Rosberg deliberately went down the escape road to deny Hamilton a pole. It couldn't be proven, but it looked pretty sus at the time. But of course, this had been building. So the trust element, that was already gone by this point because Mercedes being so far ahead, they obviously had to enact these racing rules. And they still have this charter to this day that they try to... Uh, uh, rules of engagement. by. The rules I of engagement. Thank you. Yep. But it, you know, it's been in play for 10 years now. And because they were so far ahead, they knew it was going to be about... Hamilton and Rosberg every race so they had to they had to police how each driver used their various engine settings and power deployments during a Grand Prix so one didn't have an unfair advantage over the other because of course by this point not only have you got new brand new power units with all the ancillaries but you've got restrictions over components and you've got an engine freeze in play and there's a whole reliability and efficiency drive so they weren't they weren't allowed to just blow through the engines to try and catch the other guy if they were behind and you had a flashpoint I think in Bahrain round three where they were racing quite closely for the lead after the safety car and there was an accusation I can't remember which way around it was whether it was Rosberg alleging Hamilton had done it or the other way around that one had basically used an engine setting they they shouldn't have done in that battle and then the same thing happened in Spain in reverse so Mercedes were already having to fight this kind of behind the scenes uh battle to control the two drivers trying to gain an unfair advantage over the other and then of course you had the Monaco thing which was much more 
blatant if you like in terms of being a thing that everyone talked about and then this is just classic Toto Wolf trying to manage the manage the media around it but behind the scenes the tension was already there and it was always going to be something he was going to struggle to keep a lid on. Wolf uh, was revealing again about this relationship on the F1 Beyond the Grid podcast in 2020 when he said there were things in the relationship between the two drivers that nobody else would ever understand because everyone, himself included, were spectators to it. He said the dynamics of what happened between them was actually very difficult to follow and he recalled them falling out in 2013, not long after he joined the team. From there, he said it got worse and worse. Uh, He used the word animosity several times to describe the relationship. And he said it was very difficult because there was a lot of negativity and it would drag the whole room down in team meetings. Rosberg spoke about the relationship breakdown to Eurosport in 2022, saying it happened immediately in 2014 when they started fighting for the championship. He said being friends doesn't work anymore when you're fighting for titles and it was a build up from one race to the next because you have to test the limits and go into the grey areas to win, which I think Ben has already outlined there. Ed, given how bad this had clearly got this early in 2014, are you surprised everyone involved managed to drag this out for three years before Rosberg walked away from F1 in 2016? Yes and no, which is a gloriously fence-sitting answer. But Classic edge draw. That's partly because <laughs> at the time it felt like this was the absolute peak of it because there was a bit of a feeling that probably Hamilton would in the longer term assert himself. And 2015, of course, was a non-fight. And it felt like it happened in 14. And then 15 happened and okay, that's kind of the natural order. But then we had this amazing 16 season. It all came back and you started having Spain and Austria collisions then uh, and that kind of thing. So suddenly it, it, it was back. And uh, yeah, <laughs> that, that phrase rules of engagement had, uh, had leapt to mind when thinking about this particular uh, question as well. So yeah, I thought 14 was going to be the peak. So it, it's quite weird really because there wasn't a straight line in ramping up from the early phases of 2014 because it was pretty intense. Even the the non-flashpoints had that underlying tension. It sort of had a peak in 14, then it had another peak in 16, and then Rosberg did his mic drop moment. So in that regard, it was a, a bit of a a surprise that it that it kept that it kept going. But there was always the t- the potential for this to be the case because they were so storied. They knew each other very well. There were all sorts of things that would have gone on throughout their their relationship together that will feed into it some of which we'll never really know about and they also just understood what needed to happen I think Rosberg knew he had to push things in order to play on some of his other strengths to to get on top of Hamilton and talk many times not so much on this podcast but in other things about how much Hamilton actually learned from being teammates with with Rosberg the Hamilton of 2014 is still a stupendously able driver, but one who I don't believe had completely bought into that leave no stone unturned element. He always just thought, I can be quicker, I can I can win this, I can prevail in this fight. But by the time he'd got to the end of 2016, he'd realised, no, that's, I've got to make sure this all comes together massively. So it's really important in Hamilton coalescing. But it, yeah, it, it felt like it would sort of build up to a flashpoint, then it would all be calmed down, but it, it could never be quite put in its box. And that was because Rosberg kept, to his credit, defying expectations. And, and although he wasn't quite at Hamilton's level, he could get very close. And that 
put him in a position to fight for the championship. And that's why it's a bit of a mixed bag because I did think it would be a bit of a one and done in terms of a proper championship challenge for Ross Berg. And I was utterly wrong on that because obviously 2016 happened. Yeah, uh, I guess if uh, if doing a hybrid episode doesn't shut this show down, I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll do <laughs> something from 15 or 16 at some point. But there might be a theme that we will either look for Hamilton-Rosberg flashpoints uh, and or Mercedes defeats. Um, yeah, we, we won't do a, a, a boring dominant one-two where Lewis was 20 seconds down the road in 2015. Anyway, uh, Mercedes was unbeaten coming into Canada in 2014. They'd won all of the first six races. And that led reigning champion Sebastian Vettel to compare it to McLaren's dominance in 1988 with Honda, Ayrton Senna and Alain Prost. Vettel said he hadn't seen a team so dominant since then and that whenever Mercedes had a chance to claim a 1-2, they did because the gap was so big to the rest. He also wasn't very optimistic about anyone closing the gap because he felt the regulations don't allow much room for new things. Ed, when you were covering the start of the Mercedes dominance, did you ever think to yourself for a moment, oh, this is what it must have been like covering F1 in 1988? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't specifically remember that thought suddenly striking me, but one of the advantages of doing this job is there's an awful lot of uh, material committed to the internet or print or other mediums increasingly in recent times about this. So I did have a look back, and actually the first time I made a reference to the McLaren 88 thing was in early April. I found something in my email that I'd written about it saying that they could go one better than McLaren in 88. So it was obviously in mind. But of course this did come after some periods of Red Bull dominance. Obviously, Vettler completely dominated the second half of the previous season. Yeah, it's a bit rich so coming from him, isn't it? That's the thing. <laughs> oh, well, it's, it's just the, it's the law. If you're in the dominant car, you recognise how difficult it is to be there and to make the most of it, etc., etc., and you say, well, of course, this is this is doing this is not easy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then if you're not in it, you say, well, this is all ridiculous. Why have they got the dominant car? That's just. And then you leave your team, Mr. Vettel, <laughs> well, and now Mr. Hamilton. Yeah, you might drop. Yeah. <laughs> well, there we go. There we go. So yeah, it's it's it was certainly on the cards, and the further it went into the season, the bigger the chances perhaps of that happening. Because you thought early on, when there were a few problems, it was more likely that Mercedes would drop the ball, although. As we will get on to discuss, they hadn't encountered all the uh, the problems that could trip them up. So yeah, uh, winning every race was a realistic possibility, although I don't think it was a massively widespread sentiment at that particular moment. But there was a, wow, this is, this is really dominant, this is really one-sided feeling going on. So we knew it was going to be mostly silver arrows all the way. Talking of Vettel, uh, his Red Bull team denied it was going to split with Renault after the French manufacturer had made such a bad start under the hybrid rules. Team boss Christian Horner said Red Bull would 100% still be with Renault in 2015, stressing that Red Bull wasn't considering alternatives. And uh, he said it was a multi-year agreement, but also pointed out there were performance criteria associated with that. He said Red Bull hadn't given Renault any ultimatums other than we want to improve as quickly as we can. And he felt Renault fully understood its predicament. However, we've learned uh, since from Red Bull design wizard Adrian Newey that this wasn't quite Red Bull's stance in private. Horner, Newey and Helmut Marko had met with Renault president Carlos Ghosn and... Newey said in his book that they didn't come out feeling reassured that there was a real commitment to catching up, which Newey said was quite depressing. Newey expanded on this in 2022 to the race and bring back V10s as a very own 
Mark Hughes, saying, We had a supplier that seemed more interested in the marketing angle that came from being in F1 than actually being competitive. And when Newey appeared on F1's Beyond a Grid podcast, he said that meeting uh, was meant to put pressure on Renault to up its budget and resources for the F1 project. But Gone told them, I have no interest in F1. I'm only in it because my marketing people say I should be. <laughs> ben, how bad was <laughs> Renault's situation at this stage in 2014? Oh, it was really bad. It was really bad. I mean, this At the time, we didn't know of this meeting and the Gone uh, the going admission but it makes sense now in the sense that obviously they had this kind of behind the scenes parity equalization deal between the manufacturers in the v8 era and those engines were at the end of their you know end of their development span so the manufacturers were doing f1 about as cheaply as they could do it and really only mercedes poured the money into developing the new hybrid properly Ferrari just got it spectacularly wrong. Renault, I guess, thought they could do it a bit on the cheap. And of course, because it was framed around efficiency and engine freeze and everything else, they kind of miscalculated that, well, you know, we're not going to need to pour loads into development because you're not going to be allowed to do any. And of course, because they started so far behind, you then had, by the end of this season, lobbying from Ferrari, Renault, to unfreeze the engine rules so that they could catch up. And they were just scrabbling. I mean... The the Renault engine was you could from trackside you could see how bad the drivability was. You could hear the wheel spin as the Red Bulls were trying to put the power down and not being able to do it. That that became really apparent in 2015 as Red Bull tried to as Renault tried to increase power to catch Mercedes. Then it would blow up. You had the Red Bull packaging problem in testing. They packaged it too tight and it was overheating. So they obviously had to make the car less efficient to help cool the engine. I remember interviewing tech, Renault, Renault's uh, engine operations guy on the ground, Remy Tafan, quite a few times in this season. And to start with, the narrative was, oh, the teams just don't really understand how to run the engine. There'll be loads of games when they just learn how it works properly. But in reality, they just undercooked it massively. They focused all their energy and the, the money they were allowed to spend on the new hybrid element, kind of forgot about the internal combustion engine, thinking that was kind of a banked thing that they could develop easily and of course because it was fuel limited and v6 turbo and all a bit different new fuels they just they just got that wrong and it all spiraled into this terrible doom loop of underpowered unreliable engine inefficient hybrid systems everything just going bang and of course if you're red bull you're kind of the quasi works team but you're not really the full works team you're just basically desperate for your your partner to deliver you this competitive power unit it never came and of course even though horn is saying yeah we're committed i mean by even this stage certainly by the next season they were lobbying for a mercedes deal behind the scenes and the amazing thing is and i'm risking upsetting the bring back v10s absolutists further with this that doom loop has been referred to it still exists in a similar in a smaller way today in that Renault has never really caught up, not properly. Yes, it's a lot closer now, but this is a decade of just being a little bit behind. The step behind is only small now, but it's significant because they were lobbying to get some breaks uh, last year. So it's astonishing, really, that Renault, that's been such a successful power unit manufacturer, has basically underestimated things for a long time now. 
and it all started here. That's the absolutely remarkable thing, and it shows how decisions made a long time ago can <laughs> can have a big knock on effect. And if you don't learn the lessons fully, then you never really escape from it. So it's really astonishing because Renault was a byword for F1 engine success. You could question some of the success that they had as, at times as a team, as a works team, because they probably failed a little bit more than they succeeded, although they did win championships. But they were a gold standard as a, an engine supplier. 2014 is the start of Renault as a Division Two power unit supplier in F1, and it's not escaped since. It's a sleeping giant, but it's not It's not managed to get back into that into that fight absolutely properly. Yeah, which is amazing, considering obviously in most of the seasons we cover, usually on Bring Back V10s, you can usually point to some sort of Renault brilliance um as, as we will in the next episode we'll be back in we'll be back in the world of mid-90s v10s next next week i assure you they were so bad that even their old works team abandoned them for the following season and took mercedes mercedes customer engines <laughs> that's that's how bad they were yeah team endstone <laughs> i'll also quickly say the three of us spent a fortnight in bahrain didn't we covering uh pre-season testing in that year yeah and the Renault situation was very clear then and and I think we were taking turns to go and speak to Remy Tafan, who you mentioned there. I found him incredibly frustrating to deal with. I think he was clearly a man under pressure running a failing programme, but you you could tell he was looking you in the eyes and lying to you because I think he felt he had no other option. And I, I don't think it actually did him or Renault any favours. Anyway, uh, I wanted to pick up on something else new he said on Beyond the Grid about this period. Host Tom Clarkson asked him if Red Bull could have run Mercedes close in 2014 if it had a Mercedes engine that year. And Newey's verdict was, yes, I think we probably could have done. He said that over the following years, he felt sometimes Mercedes had the better chassis and sometimes Red Bull did. But he felt Red Bull would have given them a pretty good run for their money with engine parity. Ed, we'll just look at the 2014 element here. How good was the Red Bull car that year? And do you think it could have beaten Mercedes with engine parity? Yeah, it's a very good car. It's probably conceptually a little bit better. If you look at the start of the season, you had just slightly different approach on the, the nose design and absolutely making sure they had the nose as high as possible to get the maximum airflow under the front of the car, which is a really important trend. So I think conceptually the car was a little bit better. The Mercedes wasn't a brick powered by a brilliant engine by any stretch <laughs> of the imagination. But I think you can look at the Red Bull in 14 and say, yeah, that was conceptually a bit better. Now, when answering the question of would they won, it's very easy to say, oh, yeah, if you change that, then this happens. And I think there's a pretty good argument for it. Now, that power deficit was significant. It was something like 70 brake horsepower early on, before you start thinking about any of the reliability problems, drivability problems. They had issues quite early on as well under braking. So obviously you had the brake-by-wire system come in. The electronics were really important. So they had to spend a few of the early races troubleshooting that to get the car working well under braking, which it did later. But... There's all these other problems that feed into it. And then, of course, you have to run a little bit less downforce to offset it. So this philosophy of running high downforce levels, getting the lap time and just being at the front that had served Red Bull so well, that was out the window. They had to then lean off the car. So it's the opposite of a virtuous circle, really. You end up compromising other areas and you're compromising your car development because you're so focused on the power unit side and any packaging problems that that you're having with it. So I think... 
yeah, if there was a Mercedes engine in it, probably all things being equal, that Red Bull was marginally the faster car. And it was still pretty well operated, I would say, by that team. You can argue Red Bull was a slightly sharper team just in terms of the way things worked in that year. So, yeah, I, I think it's a perfectly reasonable claim. You can never be absolute, but that Red Bull was very good. I don't think you could always say that through these difficult hybrid Renault-powered Red Bull eras. There were some years where things went wrong, but I think, yeah, the 14 car was very good. This Renault situation left Newey so disillusioned that he toyed with leaving Red Bull, saying in his book that it was a depressing time with no apparent light at the end of the tunnel. He eventually signed a new Red Bull deal, which we'll come to in a moment, because first we have to talk about the approaches he rejected from Mercedes and Ferrari. Newey said Nicky Lauda approached him from Mercedes and they had a series of talks about him joining. Newey wrote, uh, I was tempted, but not that much. It didn't feel right, and I would have felt like a trophy hunter. Ben, very quickly, we don't want to drift too far away from the safe haven of normally aspirated engines. Um, (laughs) But how would the last decade of F1 have looked if Adrian Newey had been at Mercedes for all that time instead of Red Bull? Well, I think probably we'd be out of jobs, wouldn't we? Mercedes would be (laughs) 10 times constructors' champions. Hamilton would be 10 times drivers' champion. Or maybe Max Verstappen would have joined Mercedes at some time, uh, having established himself in F1. Who knows? I don't remember this this particular rumour, as it was at the time, being quite so strong. No, it didn't as really the Ferrari get out. one. No, there was tra- there was traction in the Ferrari thing. Yeah, and I, rem- I remember I remember being lied to uh, to my face by uh, interim team principal Marco Mattiacci. Uh, when I asked him about it at the end of this race weekend. But the Mercedes thing, that was much, much quieter. But it kind of makes sense because I never... This is the season that Paddy Lowe came in, having, I think, been signed under Ross Braun and done a year of gardening leave at McLaren. And there was a there was a sense of kind of Team Austria, Lauda and Wolf kind of taking proper control now that Braun was was gone. And Lowe felt like a bit of a hangover from the... Braun management and I remember he went in as executive technical director and him and Toto were kind of level in the structure at least it looked that way and then there was a kind of slapdown moment where Wolf basically changed his job title or got his job title changed and became the proper team principal and Paddy was you know you're you're the technical director but they never with this with this approach that we know now know about and also the fact they got James Allison in very shortly after this, kind of during 2016 that he was signed from Ferrari, kind of never felt that they had full faith in Paddy Lowe. So it doesn't surprise me that they were making a play to get, well, the best the best car designer, technical leader left in Formula One at that point. The bigger approach, uh, as, as we mentioned, as Ben mentioned there, came from Ferrari. And this was, as you say, this was a bit more out there. Newey said uh, it wasn't the first time he'd been courted by Ferrari, but in his book he said this time they meant business. He said he had serious talks with Ferrari president Luca de Montezemolo and the offer was amazing. Montezemolo offered Newey everything at Ferrari on both the road and race car sides of the business. So this is this is a Hail Mary attempt. Newey said it would be an almost film star lifestyle and money that was well over double the already generous salary he was earning at Red Bull. 
Newey said he lost a lot of sleep over the decision, but eventually turned it down because Red Bull felt like home to him and he didn't really want to leave. He said he felt almost paternal having been with Red Bull almost from the start and that his work there had offered a fulfilment in a sport I had adored since childhood. Ed, given how combustible Ferrari can be politically, do you think even if they had Adrian Newey, they'd have been able to get the best out of him? It's difficult to see, isn't it? This wasn't a particularly stable period for Ferrari. And to be fair, most periods aren't especially stable for <laughs> Ferrari. We were early in this sequence of team bosses, you know, Domenicali, Mattiacci, Riva Bene, Bonotto, now Vasseur indicative of the unique political forces at Maranello. So my baseline position is Ferrari wouldn't have done because I think Ferrari struggles to get the best out of a lot of people. However, if they really threw the kitchen sink at Newey, one thing Newey would want would be the right level of control. It's possible that the power, the reputation he had might allow a team to kind of coalesce around him. And you could create a kind of island of stability in Ferrari that could be that could actually really work very, very well. Because often it's a combination of results pressure and short-termism that undoes Ferrari. So could Newey say, right, we do this, this, this and this. It's going to take a few years, but this is what we can do. This is the forward-thinking technical approach. It's possible there might have been the breathing space to let that play out. Having said that, I'd still say it's more likely it would go wrong because what happened not long after this, De Montezemolo was out, wasn't he? He recruited Vettel and then suddenly Montezemolo <laughs> was gone. So I just don't see that those those rough seas at Ferrari would, would calm enough. There's a small chance he might have done, that knew he might have just been able to make it happen. But also, he's somebody, I think, who as soon as he got a sense that these these forces were working against him, I think he'd have just thought, oh, this is just pointless. It's just not going to work. So it would have needed a, a strong start and a fair wind and, and really get rolling for that to happen. There's a lot of ifs there. So if I had to put money on it, I'd say no, it wouldn't have worked. And I suspect that'll be one of the main reasons why Newey decided not to take it up, as well as something I've always suspected has been there, which has been he didn't have great experiences of Italy with all the Senna trial stuff dragging on for such a long time. So maybe that played into it as well. I think in retrospect, it would have solved his his engine crisis a bit sooner because as part of this sequence of everyone falling on their swords, Domenicali going and then De Montezemolo going, they fired the engine guy this season. The only, pe- the only team that started with a worse engine than Renault was Ferrari. But they promoted Mattia Bonotto, who obviously went on to become team principal and he was credited with fixing the Ferrari engine and by 20 going into 2015 and then 16 they were much better on the engine side so I think if New had gone in to Ferrari had he been able to see through the chaos and decided yeah actually I'm going to take that punt I think he would have been the guy who could have bought that whole thing together and maybe some of those Vettel Hamilton near misses that followed might have gone in Ferrari's favour. Interesting. Anyway, in the end, Newey signed a new Red Bull contract. But when it was announced over the Canadian Grand Prix weekend, it was also revealed that from 2015, Newey would be stepping back from day-to-day involvement in F1 to work on other projects with Red Bull. Newey explained at the time that he felt F1's new regulations were very restrictive, which he said was a shame. He said it's difficult to find new areas to explore because they are so tight And uh, he said he would move into an advisory role while trying to apply his ability to other things. He sort of addressed the Ferrari speculation, at least acknowledging its existence. 
but he said walking away from Red Bull would feel a little like walking out on your wife. Christian Horner played down any sense of Red Bull losing Newey from its F1 efforts, saying he wasn't completely retiring from F1, so he would still be around and the team would still have access to him. Ben, when this was announced, did it feel like maybe an alarm bells moment for Red Bull's prospects? And did what actually happened over the years that followed? I think you and Ed both said, you know, there were some not so great Red Bulls just after this period. Did that prove that Red Bull couldn't actually live without Newey? Yeah, I think so. I I think they could live without him, but they couldn't thrive without him. (laughs) So they, they made actually what's turned out to be a very shrewd play. They weaken rivals by making sure that no one can get hold of him, but they effectively treat him like an internal consultant and go, yeah, off you go, do what you want. And then when we need you, we'll call you. And of course they did. They would they would get him in to fix some of the cars that followed in this period when they weren't working. But yeah, he wasn't enthused at this point. I feel like his default position with every set of new rules is, ah, there's, these are no good. They're too restrictive. And then if he finds something within them that allows him to be creative and, and get excited and win then he goes for it and so his enthusiasm for this now ground effect here is greater um even though again there's he was making the same comments about them being too restrictive um but yes you didn't see much of Newey through this period he was definitely disillusioned with it so I think Red Bull did the right thing to say well let's try to move on just give him give him his head to do what he wants and then if we need him we can we can get him in and at least no one else can have him because of course if if he had gone to another team then I think Red Bull would have would have really struggled to be as successful as they were even in the in the dominant Mercedes years. And probably without the breathing space that he had then, I doubt he'd still be in F1 now, uh, design, helping design excellent ground effect cars. Well, exactly. And also Red Bull were, were shrewd to realise what Ron at Dennis here and McLaren didn't in how you get the best out of Newey is giving him this freedom and allowing him to be creative and, and leaning into the skid, if you like, whereas Ron went for this adversarial where we can build a structure that means that we don't need you. And of course, they were wrong. Yeah, that worked really well. <laughs> Let's get back to Ferrari, because as we've mentioned several times in this episode already, they made a rubbish start to the hybrid era as well. Fernando Alonso was urging the team to work hard, saying Ferrari was in a low performance situation <laughs> and that it needed to improve. And get this, its power unit, aerodynamics, starts and many things. <laughs> Quite the list of demands from Fernando. Uh, Kimi Raikkonen, who was back for a second stint at Ferrari alongside Alonso, said the car was confusing because it could feel very difficult on one lap and then everything would work a few laps later. Back in 2014, James Allison, now of Mercedes, was heading up the technical side at Ferrari and he said some fascinating things around this time. Allison said there was nothing magic Ferrari could do, but he said creativity and originality are really important parts of being competitive. And he urged Ferrari to give space to people to bring their creativity forward. He said, if you force them to operate with their backs against the wall, up against deadlines that are very, very tight, then there's no time for them to think about how they might approach something differently because they only have one option. That's to give you something they know will work. There is a wealth of talent at Ferrari. It's a matter of giving them the space and the encouragement to do unusual things and know that if they fail, there's still time to put a backup plan in place. Ed, uh, James Allison. I think always has a great way with words, but how telling are these words from him at this at this low point for Ferrari? 
yeah, well articulated and yeah, very telling. Again, it comes back to that results pressure and short termism. And 2014 is a great example of that because one of the reasons Ferrari struggled so much is it was just late on the 2014 car and the, and the 2014 power unit. And one of the primary reasons behind that is Luca de Montezemolo was pressuring them for short term. He wasn't accepting in the, the year before it's look we've got to go full steam on 14 and just accept 13's a lost cause he he wasn't accepting it even later in the season so that's what I think Allison is talking about because then you get everyone backs against the wall no time for creativity and that is really really important because if you're just desperately paddling just to get something done you don't have time to say well actually what if we prioritized y over x rather than the conventional x over y it's what red bull's done so well so yeah allison absolutely on the money there with ferrari it's regularly been a problem there and we still talk about them battling against that particular tendency today allison newey that would have been a good combination wouldn't it pretty fearsome for ferrari if they'd managed to get that newey deal over the line and then somehow get those two working together i think they would have cooked up a storm yeah that's a t- terrifying prospect Let's uh, let's talk about something a little different just briefly. And that was F1's approach to social media back in 2014. This was, of course, still when Bernie Eccleston was at the peak of his powers. And he was resisting claims that F1 needed to embrace social media channels like Twitter, Facebook and YouTube. When asked about social media, uh, Bernie said it matters, obviously, but I think the change that is currently taking place is very short lived as these social media people are starting to think it is not as good as they thought. We're commercial. If they find people to pay us to be on those platforms, then I will be happy. (laughs) Ben, I I would say, um, like many things Bernie said, that hasn't aged very well. What did you think? I think the important thing here is what did you think at the time of Bernie's stance on social media for F1? Yeah, it was not as clear cut at this point. I think everyone was on social media in F1. The teams were starting to make use of it, particularly things like Twitter, starting to communicate with their fans directly in an immediate way. So it was clear that there was some value in it. And there were these behind the scenes arguments between people like Toto Wolf and Bernie, you know, especially because the hybrid era had become suddenly so depressingly one-sided. There was massive panic about the TV audiences being down, etc. So there was they were looking for the next thing to kind of fill that gap. They were trying to explain that phenomenon by saying, well, people's viewing habits are changing and things like I players are more important now and consuming on demand rather than sitting down and watching the Grand Prix on a Sunday in front of the TV like Bernie envisaged. But in fairness to Bernie, social media still is difficult to make money out of. And certainly 10 years ago, nobody had a clue. So he was kind of right to say, well, you know, we get we derive our money from linear TV. We've gone pay-per-view as well on top of that. So it's very much directly based on people paying to watch. And if I pivot in this direction, where does the money come from? And then, of course, he had these other clunky remarks about it just being for a load of kids and they've got no money. So why do I want to waste my time appealing to them anyway? I need to appeal to the 70-year-old bloke with loads of cash because our sponsors are Rolex and Tag Heuer, etc. So, yeah, it hasn't dated well. But at the time, he had a a point, even if it wasn't a, a, a cast iron solid one. Also in the news ahead of this race in North America was F1's newest team, Haas. 
And the news was that it had delayed its entry from 2015 to 2016 to allow it to be better prepared to make its F1 debut. Team owner Gene Haas said he really wanted to go racing in 2015, but he felt pushing it back a year would prevent a scramble to make the first race of the season, and he felt Haas would be a better team by giving itself more time. Ed, we'll come on to a bit more detail around where Haas were with their plans in a moment. But what did you think of that decision to delay by a year to 2016? Yeah, I think it seemed almost inevitable. You also have to remember that at this point, the USF one disaster was still quite fresh in the mind. Haas didn't have the reputation that it quickly built when it got those good results early in 2016. And there were question marks around it. Having said that, slightly offset by the fact that Gene Haas was known to have serious resources. That's something that F, uh, USF1 uh, never had. But it was this whole new model, and there were a lot of things to get working. There were a few big-ticket items they couldn't get done in time, things like building monocoques, etc. So that was always going to get in the way. But there were also a lot of just little delays here and there, just the normal course of things while trying to throw everything together that, that would hold it back. So it was an eminently sensible decision, and had has pressed on with 15 then probably the team would have utterly flopped because it just wasn't workable. But I think it's worth noting there was still a lot of doubt about Haas at this time, especially with this heavily dependent on Ferrari model, something completely different. And although there's a lot of scepticism about Haas these days, at the time it was a very different kind of scepticism. And the idea they could even prove they could run around at the back was uh, was one that, that, that people felt needed to be proved. So yeah, sensible from Haas. And I think there was still doubts prevalent despite the fact Gene Haas did have the resources and was making better progress than USF1 ever did. Haas didn't quite have that model nailed down at this stage in 2014. The the, the Ferrari deal wasn't in place but Gene Haas told our former colleague uh, Jonathan Noble at Autosport, we were all there at the time as well, uh, that the team wanted a manufacturer to be a technology partner not just an engine supplier. Uh, Haas had spoken with Ferrari and Mercedes about this and while nothing was signed Uh, Talks had gone further with Ferrari. Team boss Gunter Steiner outlined that the plan was to take as many parts from a senior team as was allowed under the rules. And those rules were changing for 2015 to open this up a bit more. Gene Haas said, we want to be the team that takes advantage of that rule and try to buy it as much as we can. At this stage, Haas were backing away from the idea of coupling these parts with a Dallara chassis. And the plan was to build their own car. Gene Haas said they'd have only needed to do the Dallara deal if they were coming in for 2015. But by delaying a year, Haas could build its own cars. At this stage, Haas was also planning to be almost fully based in America, with a a European base being set up purely so they could ship the cars. um, And I quote from either London or Germany. But Gene Haas said primarily everything is going to be done in North Carolina. He didn't feel the distance between Charlotte and London was an issue because there are so many direct flights and transportation and communication shouldn't be an issue. Ben, is it fair to say that the Haas F1 setup we got in the end didn't quite deliver on some of those expectations? Yeah, I think that is absolutely fair. I remember this race weekend in Canada, Steiner was in the paddock. Uh, having meetings with Ferrari, so presumably he was he was progressing quite far down that that line of technical partnership, which was novel and obviously proved quite controversial as well. In April, Haas had been saying the whole point was use use Delara as you outlined for the short term to get on the grid, 
and then they wanted to learn to be a constructor. So they had this idea to basically shortcut the way in and then become more of a conventional F1 operation down the line. And then it kind of flipped to, oh, well, actually, we don't need to do the the Delara thing because we can just delay a year. And then, oh, actually, no, we do need that anyway. But And we also need to delay a year. And, of course, in terms of learning how to be a constructor properly, that's kind of never really happened. They, they remain a, a, an approximation of the original has to this day and the american hq thing i mean I always feel like that's a bit of a pipe dream you know it's nice in theory but you need a european base of operations for formula one well ideally a uk one which obviously they have and even honda when they when they came in slightly later um they also realized they needed one so you know it all all roads lead to well not rome exactly but banbury Oxfordshire. Not quite as glamorous, is it? Yeah. <laughs> Back uh, to the teams already on the grid then. And Jensen Button was fending off speculation about his F1 future. He said he was keen to stay with McLaren, but it wasn't the right time for talks as they had a lot of other issues to solve first with the car's competitiveness before sitting down to talk contracts. Button was very revealing about where his head was at in 2014 in his autobiography, saying that the death of his dad, John, over the off-season had taken a toll on him. Jensen said, I found myself mentally floundering in a season that felt like a memorial to my dad. I was numb with grief and stunned by a sudden and profound loss of passion for the sport. I wanted to stay, or so I thought at the time, but I was being made to feel insecure by McLaren. Suddenly, I felt as though I had to justify my position in the team. Each race felt like an audition. He also said that this was the time when he realised he didn't have the need to win title after title like some drivers do, and that his hunger was satisfied because he'd made it to F1, won races and won a championship. So Ben, to... To give this a little more context, I, I think the situation at the time, Jensen felt that kind of junior driver Kevin Magnussen was going to be McLaren's future and that it could be Jensen who would be vulnerable if they made a change. Button said in his book that he felt his lack of verve was only too evident to the outside world and the media. Were you picking that up in the in the paddock in 2014? Yeah, it's an interesting one because obviously I was new to the paddock and therefore new to to speaking to and seeing Jensen. He definitely was grumpy through most of that season. Um, I don't think I appreciated the time quite how devastated he was or how long that devastation wrought through his through his season. It makes a lot of sense when you put it in that kind of context. And he definitely was being made to feel insecure by McLaren because obviously Eric Boulay had hatched Project Alonso to to take Fernando to McLaren for their tie with Honda that you know, Ron had done the deal a couple of years earlier, you know, having got paranoid about Mercedes having an unfair advantage by being the works the works team now. So there was all of this swirling around. Obviously, McLaren were minded to have Alonso as the lead driver, and then it was a case of well, who slots in. And I think they did want Magnussen. Internally, they decided Magnussen was faster. And obviously, because he was a rookie, you have this, this whole gradient for improvement that someone in Button's position even though he's been very successful just doesn't have and there was murmurings mid-season that Ron had gone to Denmark to try and drum up commercial support for Magnussen and make more of a thing of that and it didn't really it wasn't really forthcoming and then they kept delaying and delaying their decision and it was the I think it was the last last spot on the grid confirmed for 2015 I remember going to a press conference 
in the dead of December. Yeah, it was December. At the wasn't MTC, it? where they finally announced that Button Button would be Alonso's teammate and Magnussen would be a, th- a third and reserve driver. And I think ultimately it came down to you know Button's profile being a British driver, Ron just wanting that that commercial angle because obviously at this time McLaren they'd lost their title sponsor and uh, Vodafone were off and. Ron was refusing to drop the rate card, so this this period of McLaren was very silver and quite bare. I think they had like a fuel partner sponsor on the rear wing, and that was about it. So there definitely were some multiple factors swirling around. I think Button was just unlucky to be swept up in that, and also to be in the headspace he was. I feel like if his personal situation had been more stable and he'd been feeling more self confident, he would have just got out. He'd have got the heck out of Dodge. He would have. He would have leveraged his past success to get into another team where he could have felt more loved you know we 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 tried to sort of suggest oh could he go to ferrari you know because kimmy was kimmy was awful in 2014 so it felt like you know there were seats where someone like button could do a potentially no worse job at the very least but maybe because he was feeling so insecure he was therefore more minded to to just stick with mclaren because he'd been there so long and he knew them and it, it felt most I guess a bit like a second family, but maybe not one that was showing him the love and respect that maybe he deserved. The interesting thing was that I was looking back through some of the notes and bits and pieces I'd done with Button, and it's funny, it didn't leap to mind that there was a change in his demeanour, but actually I did comment on it at the time, and and I think I did an interview with him in Malaysia where that topic came up about the the loss of his father, and, and I basically said, well, Jensen's not, comfortable talking about this you can't leap to conclusions on it on how the loss affected his attitude to racing but it's safe to assume it's changed things so there was an element of that being obvious there and I think he had to yeah go through a a bit of a phase of of finding his finding his way in in motor racing when it's not part of that dad and lad thing that it started out as which it continued to be because of course John Button was such a big part of the paddock furniture before his death and I mean that in a positive way he was a very uh he, he was a very sort of positive not a carting dad presence as, as you can get but he he was just part of the paddock furniture and very popular yeah you made that reference to two people who probably have had carting dads uh <laughs> anyone who's seen the Braun GP documentary that came out recently you know Jensen talked uh very warmly of his dad in that as well Another McLaren contractual story that came to a resolution over the Canada weekend revolved around Dan Fallows, the man today who's in charge of technical matters at Aston Martin. Ten years ago, Fallows was in a tug of war between McLaren and Red Bull, which almost made its way to the high court. Fallows had signed a contract with McLaren in September 2013 to leave Red Bull. But when he was supposed to start work in March 2014, he never showed up and McLaren couldn't get hold of him. Then in April, when McLaren announced it was signing Peter Pedromu from Red Bull, Red Bull announced Fallows as Pedromu's replacement. McLaren boss uh, Ron Dennis questioned Red Bull's integrity and sense of fair play over this, as he felt Red Bull had enticed Fallows to break his deal with McLaren. But the legal action was dropped over the Canadian Grand Prix weekend, with speculation that Red Bull would agree to release Pedromu early, to make it all go away, and McLaren and Red Bull saying it had all been resolved with a handshake between Christian Horner and Ron Dennis. Ed, what did you make of this? I think from looking back, Pedromo did join McLaren a few months early in the end, didn't he? 
Yeah, obviously that was all part of the resolution. It's interesting that feeling at the time was that McLaren had kind of ended up with second prize and that Red Bull accepted this outcome because Fallows was the one that they were more keen on keeping hold of. It's interesting though, because I remember Red Bull's kind of behind the scenes feeling at the time was that, oh, Pedromi's good, but he's not the ideas and creativity driver, etc., etc., etc. And then... <laughs> Many years later, when Fallows leaves for Aston Martin, you had a very similar thing about Fallows. Oh, well, you know, he's really good, but he, you know, he's not the idea. <laughs> so <laughs> you never know how much of that is post hoc rationalisation. But I do think Red Bull did feel that keeping Fallows and losing Pedromu was a net better mitigation than the other way around at the time. Whether history's borne that out is a, another question. But yeah, that, that's what that was all about. And obviously, yeah, that. Red Bull has had to deal with people coming after its personnel constantly, which is great irony considering in the early years they wound everyone up so much with their aggressive <laughs> recruitment. Let's get to the race action then. And Nico Rosberg was very pleased to outqualify Lewis Hamilton at a track where Hamilton was a bit of a specialist, but we'll come back to Mercedes drivers and their dramas later. At the back of the field, uh, there was another teammate fallout when Marussia pairing Max Chilton and Jules Bianchi collided on the opening lap, putting both cars out. Chilton got the blame for the shunt, which marked his first retirement in F1 after 25 consecutive finishes, but he felt the three-place grid penalty he picked up was unfair. He said the TV pictures cut to the incident too late, which made it look like he was out of control and slid into Bianchi at turn three. But he said what really happened was he was alongside Bianchi, who Max then felt break too late but still turned in, leaving him nowhere to go. Bianchi said he didn't break too late and that he was only wide in the corner because he was trying to give Chilton space and he described it as a racing incident that was someone's fault, which is, is brilliant, <laughs> brilliant phrasing. Uh, Chilton felt that the fact he only got a three-place penalty showed the stewards knew he hadn't been massively irresponsible and he admitted that the drivers had a few words immediately afterwards, but they shook hands over it at the next race in Austria. Ed, as we discussed at the beginning of this show, uh, you love backmarkers, usually V10 era pre-qualifying nonsense, but we'll, we'll give you a backmarkers question 2014 spec here. What did you think of this clash between Chilton and Bianchi? Yeah, it was definitely Chilton's error. I do agree with him that it wasn't the most egregious or ill-spirited thing. It was just an attempt to overtake that went a little bit wrong. I don't agree with his perspective that Bianchi didn't leave room. If you see, the, the footage isn't brilliant, but you can see Bianchi is very sort of wide in the middle part of the corner. There's plenty of room there. Chilton tries it, just gets it wrong. Maybe he thought he'd be able to get more of the done more of the past done earlier on but yeah it was his fault funnily enough I do remember going down to that end of the paddock after the race to try and speak to drivers or someone from the team about it I can't remember whether I got any of them or not but I, I do remember speaking to one uh, member of the Marussia team just uh, just having a chat with them and th they sort of started off that they had they had a little bit of a Ferrari alignment historically let's say uh, <laughs> they were sort of talking to me as if my position was that it was Bianchi's fault I think there was just this default expectation that you'd side with the British driver yeah. whereas it's pretty clear to me that it was yeah it was Chilton's error but it's funny I, I got a few uh, I got a few attempts to convince me why I was wrong to think it was uh, Bianchi's fault before I, I actually convinced them that no uh, that, that that's how I read it as well. Just that that's always so that sits in the memory. But yeah, it was just a, a misjudgment from Chilton. Not ideal that it was his teammate and 
suddenly you've got a team crashing back down to earth after that sensational points finish at Monaco just before. I think you did get them. I seem to remember uh, the, the quotes that I found from this were uh, your your byline was on the story. So uh, your your tenacity at the back end of the grid um, paid off that day. Let's get into how Mercedes race unraveled then. Rosberg led the first two stints of the race, but at the second stops, Hamilton jumped him. However, Hamilton's race was immediately over as he suffered brake failure. This was caused by his car, like Rosberg's, suffering an MGUK failure caused by high temperatures. And without the energy recovery system harvesting energy, the brakes were overworked. Toto Wolff said at the time that Mercedes were caught out by the rising temperatures. And even then, they didn't realise it would have such a catastrophic effect on the MGUK. Both drivers were told to manage their brakes. And bizarrely, they both suffered exactly the same failure at the same time. But Rosberg's temperatures didn't creep up quite so high, so he was able to carry on nursing his car, and most importantly, his brakes. Rosberg said in a video on his YouTube channel back in 2018 that he did a better job than Hamilton of managing the temperatures up to that point, although Hamilton said at the time there was nothing he could do because he'd been running in the hot air behind Rosberg all race. So Hamilton was out and Rosberg was still leading, but now on a mission to try and get his car to the finish. Ben, given how the season had gone up to now, what was it like when suddenly everything looked to be falling apart for Mercedes? Oh, it was like a gift from the gods <laughs> to those watching the race. Because you you had this, we talked about, you know, Vettel's McLaren 88 comparison earlier. Obviously, Mercedes absolutely smashed the early races. And then there was a little bit of hype around Monaco and Red Bull having a sniff there because it wasn't an engine track and Renault had talked a bit about yeah yeah we feel like we're in quite good shape and Ricardo did a good stint I think in that race where his pace was quite reasonable compared to the Mercs but you know it was another Merck silver wash so then you go to Canada which is you know power track straight line you just think oh, okay so here we go again another another Mercedes one two you had the a little bit of feistiness from Rosberg you know bullying Hamilton at the first corner yeah, that that's something that escalated through the years, definitely between them in terms of who could judge that quite right. And Rosberg was often slightly over the the line, and Hamilton normally just under it. So this this race was just descending into the usual narrative. Okay, the Mercedes they're racing each other a bit, but they're miles ahead. And then of course suddenly everything pivots, and I think it was the controlled electronics that let them down. It showed that even Mercedes, as much as they were ahead of everyone else was still encountering problems. Hamilton had an engine failure, I think, in the first race, some kind of spark plug failure. And the control electronics, they were chewing through them. I think they were onto their like second or third units already by this point. So they were there were bits about cooling and packaging that even the best team were, were struggling with and being surprised by. And of course the cascade effect was that uh they needed we basically needed two Mercedes to lose 160 brake horsepower for it to become a race. I think it's worth as well looking at some of the reasons why this arose because obviously the change to the more powerful earth systems meant you actually had smaller rear brakes in 14 than before they were actually below the diameter and thickness that was permitted because you had the motor generator unit obviously harvest so that's kind of a reverse torque if you want to look at it that way that's part of your braking system and also that point about Rosberg managing better it's reasonable for Hamilton to say that he had more overheating because he was behind but Rosberg also had a little bit more forward his brake bias 
for much of that race so he had it in mind and also Hamilton I think had been a bit aggressive around the inlap because obviously temperature spikes in the brakes when you haven't got the cooling in the uh, in the pit stop rather when you haven't got the cooling airflow were a sensitivity and I think Merck felt and I think Rosberg said this as well that Hamilton slightly underestimated that and that played into it so Hamilton well, Lewis's inlap was credited as part of the reason he jumped Rosberg wasn't it as well, well exactly exactly so Hamilton didn't cause the problem that was fundamentally because they were having, as Ben said, overheating control electronics. But probably he didn't react to it in quite as good a way that, that Rosberg did. Maybe he got a little bit too sucked into that need to try and get ahead. Particularly at a track, of course, that, that Hamilton kind of saw as his own. He's brilliant around there, but Rosberg managed to nick pole and be ahead. So that whole thing about the championship battle and the way they fought each other feeds into that. Because I think in normal circumstances, probably Hamilton would have managed that a little bit better. The Urs failure not only overloaded Rosberg's brakes, but as Ben mentioned there, he was massively down on power on the straights. So now the race was on behind him for the chasing pack to perhaps claim an unlikely victory. And by now, the order behind was a one-stopping Sergio Perez for Force India, then Daniel Ricciardo, who had jumped teammate Sebastian Vettel during the pit stops. Ricardo then opportunistically passed Perez with five laps to go as Perez was delayed by having to reset a sensor on his car. Then just before the start of the penultimate lap, Ricardo nailed the limping Rosberg in the DRS zone uh, down to the final chicane, taking the lead and putting himself in position to claim his first F1 win. Ed, before we get into Ricardo's victory, just... Describe this phase of the race to us. We, we basically had 20 laps between Hamilton retiring and Ricardo finally passing Rosberg so close to the end. It's funny, isn't it? Because it, the thing I really remember is you thought, OK, right, Rosberg's not going to win this race. And then as it progressed, and it was just Perez sat behind him who had the... He was on a one-stopper and that made life a little bit more difficult. Maybe Perez not the most incisive attacking driver at that time. So although it was dramatic... It was actually the swing from this, yeah, he's definitely going to lose this, to, oh, actually, is he going to win this race? Isn't this weird? That would be a hell of a uh, rearguard action. It's one It's one thing to win a, a race without your uh, power if you're at Monaco and you're Daniel Ricciardo, but another thing in Montreal yeah. <laughs> of all places. So it, it was funny. So I can remember thinking the whole thing of, right, this is the chance for someone to nick one off Mercedes. Might even be the only chance. And that there's nobody there to actually take advantage of it and there's none there's no John Louis Schlesser to get in the way of of Rosberg and yeah it, it was it, it was obviously the insistence of Ricardo that managed to actually change things and this this is where we did see he made a few crucial passes in that race he wasn't actually in a particularly probably he, was, he was in far from the most promising position early on there were others who were in a better position to have won that race when Mercedes hit trouble so yeah it was it was a really dramatic race from that perspective but actually that drama consisted of an awful lot not happening it was just Rosberg driving around (laughs) at the front there was Perez and then just sort of a few more cars gradually getting involved because late on you had people like Hulkenberg and Button not far off as well so it was yeah it it was funny in, in that regard and then of course it all had that dramatic ending yeah I think it's a massive credit to Rosberg actually all right the Mercedes was still a car advantage in some ways but for to hang on for as long as he did, I had the same thing. Once you knew Hamilton was out and Rosberg's effectively got the same problem, you're thinking he's either going to retire or he's going to be so slow trying to get to the end that they're all going to drive past him. This was, of course, then Ricardo's first win. So let's hear some insight from the man himself on what it was like taking a maiden victory in such dramatic circumstances. This is a clip from 2019 when 
Ricardo appeared ironically on Nico Rosberg's podcast and they had a little chat about this race. I think it's always nice, obviously, to, winning's winning, but to win a race that's eventful and that does get remembered, that's also quite cool. All of a sudden, I just remember seeing, and I knew you guys were so fast, you and Lewis, and all of a sudden I saw you guys like coming, exiting a corner and I just, I was like, I think, was that a Mercedes? And then I see two and I'm like, what the hell? And then my engineers, like they, they got problems. They got problems like, come on, push, push. And, but it just happened so quickly. And I was like, holy crap. Like all of a sudden, like I was just like maybe a podium and there was like a win could be on today. And actually I remember, so I passed you down the, the DRS straight before the last chicane with about two or three laps to go. And I think because I had such a run and the DRS was on, I braked quite late into the into the chicane and I remember literally losing the rear into the chicane and I was like oh my gosh could you imagine if I if I put it in the wall going for the lead but um so yeah the moments that followed so I hit the lead and all I remember was I literally told myself I was like please hands and feet still work like I was I was worried in a way that I would forget upshifting and I like my hands would just freeze and uh and I was just like come on like I believed I could do it but it was a weird feeling. I was like, I just, I had a fear that maybe I would just completely disintegrate under the pressure of, of about to winning my first ever race. I, I believed that it was all, I was good to go, but because it was unfamiliar, it was the first time I'd ever led a race. I was like, holy shit, just make sure things still work. So it was like, I guess a, in a way, like a split second of fear being like, this is, this is foreign to me. And I was like, I, I believe I'm good for it, but you just don't know until you're in that position. But I remember getting through turn one and two, everything was cool. I was like, all right, just stay calm and then uh, and then get it done. But um, I think the cool thing about that day, first win, because it's something you, you do dream of as a kid, even if you don't believe it, you know, until later in your career, but it is a dream since a kid. I was worried it would just be a big blur and I wouldn't remember anything, but... I, I do remember so much of it quite vividly and standing on the podium that was something in a way it's like I'd kind of visualized before and everything just felt so amazing and so real so I was just really stoked that it wasn't a blur and I could really enjoy the moment and I still remember the moment. Ben obviously this was a shock win on the day but had Ricardo perhaps earned a bit of good fortune by this point in his first season with Red Bull? We, how was he performing in those early races after his promotion? Yeah, he was performing really well. And I remember interviewing him later in this season. He talked in similar terms, actually, about Canada and this pressure he felt to actually do it and how he felt that he would maybe lose himself at the point at which he knew he could win the race. And the fact he didn't, he was like, oh, actually, I can do it. I have done I it. I love that honesty. No, the very few yeah. drivers in, in any era of F1 would admit that almost having that momentary freak out behind the wheel. Yeah, he definitely, admit, even even back in 2014, he admitted to you know, tightening up a bit and being able to push through that, being like a breakthrough in his head. But the whole whole dynamic at this stage, I mean, he was, he was driving with freedom and... I think it helped him that even though this was not, I mean, Ed outlined why the Red Bull was a good car, but it was let down by compromises, mainly to do with the Renault engine. It wasn't, to Vettel, it wasn't the sort of car that he'd become used to. It was a step back, definitely. And of course, the competitive step back definitely affected his mentality. I remember even asking Vettel a question about him going karting. There was this story 
um, slightly earlier than Canada, around Spain time, of Vettel going karting secretly just to kind of get the love of driving back because he was hating Formula One so much and he kind of shut that down. And on the other side of the garage, you've got this happy-go-lucky, smiley, perma-grinning Australian who's got his big break in F1. He's beating his teammate or certainly running in really close. And because even that Red Bull was a step up on Toro Rosso, he was he was kind of leaning into that and and going with it. So he was he was driving really well. He drove fantastically throughout this season, as I think Ed will attest as somebody who was who was assessing the drivers a little bit closer at this point in our in our careers. So uh, yeah, I was really happy for Ricardo to to steal this one, and of course. Having just started in F1, there were a few drivers, and he was he was one of them who I'd covered in the junior categories. Magnussen I'd covered in Formula Three in, in British Formula Three, Ricardo too. So there was a kind of extra buzz, if you like, from those drivers who you'd followed in the earlier parts of their careers and had done well then, then also doing it on the biggest stage of all. There was also a quite nice little um culmination of a year-long thing going on there because Canada the previous year had been kind of a pretty low point for Ricardo. He really struggled and then he had a load of meetings after that race with his with his car crew to try and get things working. And the next race that year was Silverstone where Mark Webber's retirement was announced. So you had a kind of Ricardo almost at rock bottom Canada the previous year and then he hit form immediately, made the Red Bull seat his and uh, and the, the, then had that great start and then this win so there was a nice little symmetry to that that he'd gone from that low point in Canada the year before to this being the place where he got that breakthrough win it was just a it's one of those nice little tidy narratives that uh, that we like to wrap things up in as if the nature of the win wasn't dramatic enough there was chaos at the end of the race as we mentioned earlier when Felipe Massa and Sergio Perez had a massive shunt at the start of the final lap with uh, Vettel's Red Bull incredibly lucky not to get caught up in this as well, he's minding his own business, turning into turn one, and they fly either side of him. Massa clipped the back of Perez on the approach to turn one, sending both cars out of control, and they both had their own separate impacts with the barrier at high speed. Perez got a five-place penalty for moving over on Massa, which, and Massa didn't think that was a harsh enough penalty. Massa even told Perez what he thought of him when they were both in a medical centre together. Perez claimed he was hit from behind by Massa, while Force India's Otmar Zafnauer said it was Massa's fault because overtaking into turn one was impossible. <laughs> Massa had te- team backup of his own, with Williams's, I think it's fair to say, straight-talking Rob Smedley saying he jinked to the left, uh, saying Perez jinked to the left, and Smedley was also critical of Force India for leaving Perez out on track with a car problem although this was supposedly only the sense of failure that Perez lost some time having to reset. Ed, we'll come to the what became a secondary fallout from this in a moment, but how did you assess the incident itself? Was Perez at fault? Yeah, he was. There was a lot of talk at the time about the fact he didn't steer left, and he didn't steer left as such, but the track curves to the right, and he was going with that. And if you look at the onboard, you can see that the gap between the right side wheels of his car and the white line expands a bit as just before the incident happens so he does effectively move not by turning left but by straightening the wheel a little bit very 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 small now the one thing I, I will say is he did say he didn't understand why Massa had to scrape by Massa was close and there's an element there to which you have to say that you know, I always talk about how people judge overtaking manoeuvres what positions you're putting yourself in so Massa was asking Perez not to do that but I think in terms of the actual who caused it 
yeah, Perez needed not to kind of straighten up a bit. There's 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 an onboard thing where you can really strongly see where that happens. So yeah, I can understand why Perez didn't think he was he was at fault. It wasn't deliberate by any stretch of the imagination, but yeah, just a slightly risky manoeuvre from Massa and it just brought them together and in, in the way things were being stewarded then that probably would lead to a, a grid penalty. When they weren't arguing with each other, uh, both of these teams felt they could have won this race instead of Ricardo. We mentioned that sense of failure for Perez. Uh, the time he lost trying to reset that was what allowed the Red Bulls to overtake him. So Force India felt that without that problem, he would have been the one passing Rosberg just before the end. Massa disagreed, saying he would have won the race without a slow pit stop because he felt he had the quickest car on track most of the time during the race. But he was also unhappy because he didn't know Hamilton had retired. So when he saw Rosberg slowing, he thought that battle was for second place rather than the lead. Ben, did either of these teams have a case? Should one of them have won the race instead of Ricardo? Uh, lots of coulda, woulda, shoulda, I think. I'm, I'm amused by Massa's inference that if he'd known it was for the lead, he would have somehow found <laughs> many tenths of lap in order to get the job done. I think Vettel was a bit unlucky in this race. There was a few of these marginal Ricardo wins where Vettel was in a good position and something happened to him. I think he had a, a slow pit stop. I can't remember quite right. Maybe Ed will... Ed will help me out there. Um, Perez, Massa both had, they both had stints where they were within a second of Rosberg and didn't overtake him. Like Perez spent 14 laps, I think, within one second of Rosberg and didn't pass him. You needed, Massa, I think, had about half that number just bottled up behind Vettel. So if these, if they're in supposedly quicker cars, they should have been able to dispatch those guys and they didn't do it. I think what made the difference and of course, this was all very marginal. It's just Ricardo taking the initiative and pulling off one of those moves that he became patented for in this phase of Formula One. You know, he made a really aggressive pass on on Perez at turn one, and that set him up to get the job done. And you didn't really see that same kind of incisive driving from either Perez or Massa. I think probably the driver who had the best case to be frustrated was Massa, but I don't think he would have won it from the perspective of people talk about the wheel gun failure he had at the pit stop that cost him four seconds and that meant he was behind a number of other cars that's certainly true however the way Williams had done it they had undercut pressure I think from Ricardo, and they had undercut pressure on both cars but they pitted Bottas first to preserve his position and then Massa came in after so even if Massa hadn't had that wheel gun failure I think Ricardo would have undercut past him so he'd have been behind Ricardo's, but he did have a lot of pace and he was actually I think the quicker Williams driver that weekend it's just Q3 didn't quite come together so I think Massa's the one that probably would look at that and Williams as well and say yeah perhaps that was a weekend we should have won on but it's not as simple as that he had the slow pit stop because I think he'd have lost that position to Ricardo. then how's he getting it back? Just finally then the Perez penalty saga rumbled on to the next race weekend in Austria as Force India made use of the relatively new right of review system, which I think we're all quite familiar with today in F1, given how many teams try to exploit it. Force India argued that it could bring new evidence to the table for a fresh hearing because Perez hadn't been able to attend the original stewards meeting as he was taken to hospital in Canada for checks. And it also said it had relevant telemetry that it wanted to be considered. The FIA agreed that these elements satisfied the criteria for a fresh hearing, but the decision was then upheld at that hearing. 
Perez's case was that he was entitled to use the whole track to defend his position, but this was rejected because he moved in the braking area, which is not permitted. Perez was disappointed with the outcome, naturally, saying the stewards had been sensible and agreed to an extent with everything I said. So he was then surprised when the verdict was released and his case was rejected. He said he felt both drivers did our bit to collide, which I think is kind of where we maybe got to. Um, and he felt it wasn't fair for the sport or the fans to penalise him for the incident. I love it when a driver feels a victim of something and then they try and rope the fans in. They're like, oh, the fans are the real losers here. Yeah. Um, I'm just I'm just incidental collateral. <laughs> but uh, Ben, what did you think of the, of the, the petition to review and... Did, did Force India and Perez, once they brought their new evidence to light, did they have much of a case? I'll be honest, I completely forgot that this had happened, <laughs> this right of review thing had been done. Because obviously right of reviews now, because they've been used so spuriously in recent years, it's a big thing in our minds. But at the time, it wasn't a wasn't a big deal. It was almost like, oh yeah, okay, they just need to chat to him because they didn't get to chat to him at the end of the previous race. And it makes sense that you'd you'd go and see the stewards, especially if you can reconvene them and just kind of make your points. But I don't think anyone really felt like they were going to get it overturned. I mean, there was there was a tension at this point in Formula One of how to regulate the on-track racing properly. And they were, F1 lurched a bit, the FIA lurched, lurched a bit from let them race to no, we have to kind of micromanage certain situations. And with the moving under braking thing, although Ed, I think Ed outlined it very well and it was a marginal thing, obviously it had massive consequences, and that always plays a role, even if sometimes it shouldn't. And also, moving in that zone was a was a a big thing that Charlie Whiting was looking to count, clamp down on a lot. And it became a massive deal once Max Verstappen got into Formula One, and there were quite a few high profile instances of him moving within the rules as they were written and causing a guy to go off behind him because they couldn't predict where he was going to where he was going to go. So I can see why, even if. You know, maybe Perez could have said, well, I didn't, you know, I didn't turn into him. But as Ed said, the track goes a certain way. So you're effectively doing that just because the telemetry doesn't say you did. We've all got eyes, Sergio, <laughs> so we can, we can see what happened. Uh, I think then in the context of, you know, not wanting to have this kind of dangerous creep in in racing etiquette, they were always going to throw it out. I tend to remember this one as the start of racing uh, of the right to review appeals being used spuriously. It took a while for it to really start going, but it felt like this was the start of, we don't like this, we're just going to have a go. But actually, they did they did get the review, but not the change, because you, you have to get the review confirmed as necessary, and then you actually have the, the thing. Interestingly, to bring us right up to date, because I know we're so keen on doing Always that, a risk. <laughs> this was actually alluded to last season when Ferrari were trying to get Carlos Sainz's penalty overturned for the Australian Grand Prix one, the one that dropped him out of the points because it finished under safety car. They did cite the uh, the Perez review because it was accepted as a review, but not overturned the principle of you need to speak to the driver because Perez was in the medical centre was established. But actually, when Ferrari tried to do that, the steward said, no, that's that's not the case. We might need to speak to the driver, but we might not. It, it doesn't change things. So it's interesting there's actually a little connection to, to, to the very, very, very recent past. So that, that's got us up to what? April 2023? That must be the furthest forward we've ever drifted in, uh, in Bring Back V10s. Yeah, and I'm massively uncomfortable with that, so I think we'll end the episode there. I preferred it when we linked the Renault 
Renault hybrid failures back to when they were good in the V10 era. We did at least try and balance it out with a few of those mentions of 1988. I think Ed got a bit of Renault uh, 80s works team in as well. I can talk about Enrico Battaglia if you like. <laughs> and I forgot to mention Button's Honda Lynx from the Ringback V10s era. That would have played a role in McLaren keeping him on board. So there's another tenuous link to the past. Yeah, exactly. We, we, I think we're overcompensating now. Uh, let's bring <laughs> this risky first step into F1's hybrid era to an end. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Uh, it's been good fun looking back, I think, at the start of this period, even if I think we can all agree the engines are too quiet, they're missing four cylinders. And uh, frankly, it's utterly terrifying that that's already a decade ago that the hybrids came in. And actually, to do a bit of a bit more defending our case, I should have done this at the start, we did multi-21, didn't we, a few a few series back. Uh, that was 2013, and I think we covered it in 2022. So we've actually left a bigger gap here. We've waited until 2024 to go back to 2014. I, I didn't see much criticism for multi-21, uh, so hopefully this <laughs> will be okay as well. But uh, yeah, I'll continue. I, I can see myself having to justify this on social media when everyone's heard this episode. Anyway, thank you to Ed and Ben for sharing your first-hand recollections from that weekend in Canada. As I mentioned earlier, next time, don't worry, we're heading back to the safety of mid-90s V10s F1 as we look back on the 1996 Portuguese Grand Prix, a race famous for an iconic Jacques Villeneuve overtake on none other than Michael Schumacher. The Athletic. You need to do a mic drop, Glenn, just in case this is the end. Yeah, just in case the series doesn't finish. <laughs> just smash canceled. it down. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've finally blown it up. Yeah. Oh, we nearly got to series 10. <laughs>